The Triathlon Show 302. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Professor Melita McNary of Swansea University. Professor McNary and her team have recently published a meta-analysis regarding the consequences of an elite sporting career on mortality, including all-cause mortality as well as mortality caused by cardiovascular disease and cancer. So in this interview, uh, we discuss the findings, the results of that meta-analysis and what it means. And of course, even though the subjects of uh, this meta-analysis were elite athletes, uh, the reason that I think it's interesting to have uh, this sort of topic on the podcast is because as endurance athletes, a lot of the listener base of this podcast will actually be training quite a lot and uh, it starts to get interesting and you might start to think that there might be overlapping aspects of just generally training a lot and it doesn't necessarily have to be just being an elite athlete and uh, therefore there might be some similar implications although as we discussed in the interview you might not want to draw such conclusions directly but nevertheless it's uh, very interesting i think for all endurance athletes who by default uh, train quite a lot uh, i'll link in the show notes to the to the study which is open access and it's called health consequences of an elite sporting career long-term detriment or long-term gain a meta-analysis of 165,000 former athletes now before we get into the interview big thanks to our sponsors precision hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com precision hydration create electrolyte products and carbohydrate products for training and racing if you want to optimize your performance and avoid running out of energy, avoid running out of sodium or running too low on sodium as well as too low on fluid, then use Precision Hydration's free resources like the free online sweat test to get a personalized hydration strategy as well as the quick carb calculator to get fueling recommendations. And you can book a free one-on-one consultation with the team at PH to refine your hydration and fueling strategy. I'll have links to all of that in the episode description and show notes. And if you want to use Precision products that are fantastic uh, really good high quality they make it simple to know your numbers and hit your numbers and they taste great then use the promo code that craft on show one five to get 15 percent off your first order and thank you to Roka. Roka are the world-leading manufacturers of exceptional quality triathlon wetsuits, tri-suits, swim skins, goggles, performance sunglasses as well as prescription eyeglasses and sunglasses Roka are trusted by world-leading athletes such as Lucy Charles Barclay, Javier Gomez, Flora Duffy, Morgan Pearson, Summer Rappaport, and others in triathlon, cycling, speed skating, and many other sports. Roka have a new product out, which is the Matador Air, which is uh, the follow-up uh, sunglasses uh, for the Matador. So these are, are an evolved version of the Matador, and uh, they are designed to meet the need for increased airflow in hot and humid conditions. And they have been field tested in the harshest conditions uh, at the toughest races on the planet. So check them out. A new product uh, looks fantastic, really slick design. And as always, Roka will have left no stone unturned in making them the best possible product they can be. You can get 20% off your entire Roka order on roka.com forward slash TTS. Now, without any further ado, let's get into the interview with Professor Melita McNary. Today's guest on the Triathlon Show is uh, Professor Melita McNary. Uh, welcome to the Triathlon Show, Mel. How are you doing? 
I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm good as well. Uh, we were just chatting before and uh, I'm quite excited about this topic we have in store for today. It's uh, very different from the typical training and physiology uh, discussions that I have on this podcast, but uh, but I think that it will be uh, a really interesting uh, topic for listeners to learn more about. But before that, can you just start by introducing yourself uh, to the audience? Of course. So I'm um, Professor Melita McNary. Um, I'm based at Swans University, which is in Wales in the UK. Um, I've been doing research in this area since my PhD back in the kind of late 2000s. Um, and as you say, it's a, it's a really interesting area in terms of it's the ultimate aim for us all. We do engage in sport and activity because we think it's good for our health. If we also enjoy it, hopefully, and enjoy the competition. But the ultimate question is, is it good for us in the long run? And has this review highlights there's potentially some quite significant questions outstanding in that area. Yeah, so uh, I will, of course, link to your meta-analysis uh, in the show notes so people can go and have a look. But when you embarked on this project of conducting a meta-analysis, and I'll uh, just pull up the title here, it's titled Health Consequences of an Elite Sporting Career, Long-Term Detriment or Long-Term Gain, a meta-analysis of 165,000 former athletes. What was the the reason for getting into that and also what was the sort of the background in terms of prior research that had been done what hypotheses might you have gone into that project with so the kind of common perception and quite a lot of evidence supports that physical activity and the specific circumstances of exercise are very beneficial for health and that there's a pretty clear dose response relationship with some exercise being better than none but there's definitely questions remaining as to what that dose response is and whether or not there's an upper ceiling in it, either an upper ceiling whereby perhaps further benefits aren't gained or perhaps even more worryingly that there may be an upper ceiling above which further training, as it's likely to be by that point, actually becomes detrimental to health. Um, and there's a reasonable number of studies that support this potential ceiling effect. And they generally refer to it as either a U-shape or a J-shaped curve, whereby as you first start to do physical activity and exercise, it's very beneficial. You rapidly gain benefits for your mental and physical health. But then it kind of plateaus out towards the bottom and potentially there's a slight upward kick towards the end. Um, I would certainly be more a fan of the J-shape rather than the U-shape, as I very much doubt we get to a point where it's equivalent to doing absolutely nothing. Um, but there is, as I say, quite a decent amount of evidence to support this J-shaped curve. So a couple of examples, and these are just a couple, there's a lot more that could be said, are things like the Copenhagen Heart Study, where they actually showed that the lowest mortality risk was evident in light to moderate joggers, and that higher mortality risks were evident in those who did more extreme exercise levels. So those who did the highest activity levels were actually equivalent to those who did nothing in that study. And then there was a UK-based study called the Million Women Study, which is quite interesting because it actually, as you can guess from the name, it looked at women, which is quite unusual in this area. And they found that strenuous daily physical activity or exercise was associated with a significantly greater risk of cardiovascular disease of various different types relative to doing vigorous activity two to three times a week. So you can start to see from these preliminary studies that there is some evidence that there could be this threshold that we need to be aware of and potentially be able to provide better advice to people on making sure they don't 
go over. Obviously, these studies are largely what we call epidemiological studies. So they're based on large cohorts of people who are recreationally active, for lack of a better term. But when we then start to think about some of our elite athletes, you can very easily um, imagine the types and volumes and frequencies of intensity that they are doing are very likely to significantly exceed this theoretical threshold. So it raises a really interesting question as to, are these elite athletes that we put on a pedestal in terms of their their physical performance, their physical attributes, actually potentially at significantly increased risk of all-cause or cardiovascular disease mortality further down the line when they retire from their sports? Mm. So, so you wanted to basically look at look at all the research that existed specifically in this population of of elite athletes and uh, see whether there was uh, any uh, well what what the pattern of mortality was and you looked at all cause mortality but also specifically cardiovascular disease and uh, cancer uh, and uh, one one question on that how did you define elite athletes in in this uh, meta analysis? Yeah, so exactly that we wanted to try and answer some of the questions and some of the um, equivocal findings. And the best way to do that is by combining multiple different studies in the form of a meta-analysis. Um, for us, we defined elite athletes as having been at a national standard as a minimum. Um, and ideally, we wanted the studies to have included some information on their sporting history so that we could verify that they had actually engaged in that level. Mm, yeah. Uh, so, so can you uh, go on to describe a little bit uh, what uh, so so the methods of the of the meta analysis, uh, uh, including well things like how how many studies did you end up including, how many participants? We kind of said that in the title already, but uh, yeah, how how did you how did you go about doing things, and then we can get into the findings. Yep. So we did a systematic search of all the literature since 1970. Um, we ended up through that process including 24 studies. Um, it's important to note that this isn't the only systematic review and meta-analysis by any means, but one of the key novelties of it was that, first of all, it's been about five or six years since the last systematic review, and there's been quite a lot of studies published in that period. So there was a nice lot of new data that we could consider. Um, but also, as you say, we wanted to divide the disease risk up into not just all-cause modality, but also cardiovascular disease and cancer mortality risks and we also wanted to account for the influence of sport type so some of the previous one of the previous reviews has looked at sport type but the majority have just lumped all elite athletes together and obviously there's very likely to be significant between sport but also within sport differences in mortality risk according to those many different factors which perhaps we'll revisit later so, so, so oh. with, with sport type, you uh, you had endurance athletes as one group of athletes and you had team sports athletes, and which you defined as kind of an intermittent type of, uh, of sport and then uh, anaerobic or power athletes, uh, I should say. Uh, and there was things like weightlifting, uh, I think boxing, you had some other examples, but quite purely anaerobic uh, activities there. Yes, and that was one of the things we debated a lot when we were preparing this is how do we actually classify the sports because the training and the final competition don't necessarily align. So swimming is a great example that the training is extremely long duration, definitely endurance yep. type, but some of the competitions would then fall into our anaerobic category. So 
Unfortunately, because we were running a meta-analysis rather than a primary research, we didn't have the choice in all instances to split the sports as we might have wished because we had to use their pooled sporting um, divisions. But mm. yeah, so it's it's an interesting one. There's never a perfect way of doing it, I don't think. Yeah. So so that's an interesting example. How did swimming end up being classified? Um, well, fortunately, we didn't run into any issues because no one's actually looked at it specifically in swimmers. So okay. in those where we were able to pull out the different sports, it was things like football, American football, um, baseball predominantly, um, running, cycling. They were all evident, but swimming never really came up. So we didn't have to address that question in the end. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Uh, so so we have and and one more thing to mention i think is that you also you looked at least in some instances you looked separately at the gender so divided by by gender but it, it wasn't possible in all uh, in all cases due to a lack of data yes definitely it was um one of the main things we wanted to look at was the potential effect of gender so male female differences but as you say unfortunately there's very few studies that have looked at elite female athletes i think in the end they accounted for about three percent of our overall population So we just couldn't split that out to look at even different types of disease outcome, let alone the different sport types. Yeah. So uh, let's discuss, discuss the findings then. So what what did you find? Um, so the, the key findings were that overall athletes had a lower risk of all-cause mortality and a lower risk of cardiovascular disease-related mortality than the general population. And then in the male athletes who we could split that down into sport type and disease type, we found that endurance and team sports were both associated with a reduced all-cause mortality and a reduced cardiovascular disease risk mortality. But in contrast, para-athletes were not associated with advantages or benefits in terms of survival in either of those categories. Um, and as I say, we unfortunately, we weren't able to split that by sex. So we can't tell whether or not similar findings would have been seen in the female athletes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, so that would go against the J-shaped or U-shaped curve hypothesis then? It would do. Um, without doubt, it does suggest that this elite training isn't detrimental, at least when it's done with the support and the um, practices that elite athletes have. So we do have still some limitations in being able to apply this back to a, a general recreationally active population. So potentially the kind of 20-25 hours of training that elite athletes do, if done without the numerous support and access to healthcare and everything else that they have, would still be detrimental if done by your, mm. for lack of a better term, average human. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one, one thing that is quite interesting uh, and quite unique to triathlon is that in triathlon you have a fairly large population of amateurs that actually train at a volume that is similar to many elite athletes in sports that are not as volume heavy. So you might have a normal uh, amateur athlete with a job and a family that still manage to fit in 15 hours of training per week, which might be the same as a, as a football player uh, or, or some similar team sport uh, or even a more, uh, well, team sport or maybe a track and field uh, kind of kind of event so 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 it's i mean that's not something that you looked into of course but uh but it would be interesting to figure out like wh what is the 
the reason for the reduced risk of old course mortality is it like is is it the additional training that helps or is it just maybe the the fitness itself that that of course is different in the elite athletes compared to to amateur athletes yeah that's a extremely good but very complicated question as you say there's so many factors that are associated with it um i think undoubtedly the cardiorespiratory fitness is a major contributor to these health benefits and these increased longevity estimates um but there are numerous lifestyle factors that are going to contribute to it as well. So obviously we've got to distinguish the fact that these studies are often done on athletes while they are, sorry, these are studies that are done on the basis of athletes sporting practices and then looking 30, 40 years down the line. So a lot of the data that we're relying on to draw these conclusions was probably based on athletes who weren't doing the training volumes that many people now do. So it does leave a question that we're not going to be able to answer probably for another 20 30 years until some of the people that have engaged in these considerably greater training volumes get to the point of having an outcome which unfortunately is an outcome we would like to put off for as long as possible given the fact we're talking about mortality Um, but until we do get to those endpoints we don't know the current effect so this is one of those delayed outcome studies that we can't say this has this training today will have this effect 30 years down the line because 30 years ago people weren't doing this type of training yeah and you mentioned lifestyle factors there i would imagine that an exact similar effect exists with that because 30 or 40 years ago elite athletes might still uh, thinking of football for example and in england there was definitely a drinking and smoking culture there and uh, maybe for all the fitness and training that the players were doing maybe those lifestyle style factors uh, kind of uh, contradicted some of those effects anyway and but these days the football players have are made it's made sure that they live really healthy and uh, and maybe so maybe there would be a greater sort of protective effect of of being an elite athlete these days when when lifestyle factors are taken care of uh, at, at that level uh, in, in all sports not just in the ones that you really have to do it but even even in endurance sports i think that there was, was quite a drinking and potentially even smoking culture if we look back far enough so uh more so than now anyway yeah i think potentially that's a, a big factor but there's also what happens when they stop doing their elite sport so there may be people that are very healthy when they're engaged in their elite sport but as soon as they stop their physical activity levels decline they perhaps eat a little bit too much do maybe engage in some of those lifestyle behaviors like smoking and drinking that they haven't been able to do throughout their elite careers and that they then may negate some of those potential health benefits that they did gain so there's a lot of interesting questions that need to be unpicked about is it the training per se that people do during that period is it the maintenance of behaviors that they develop during that period or is it some complex interplay between the Mm -hmm. two and that's studies that still remain to be done yeah um I, I meant to ask you what what was the magnitude of protection against all course mortality and also the the sub components of uh, cardiovascular disease that you that you found so um all cause mortality overall in the population as a whole not considering sport type um reductions were about point three one for males and point four nine for females so quite significant reductions. That's in standardized mortality can, ratio. Can you can you explain what what that means? Um, so it's effectively a sort of for the, if, we, if we stick with the male data for now. So their standardized mortality ratio for all cause mortality was zero point six nine. So 
if we take one as what the general population is, they're, uh, get my maths right, 31% less likely to have the same outcome as a general population. So basically that difference to one, the bigger the difference, the better. So you want to be as far below one in these categories as we possibly can be. Yeah, yeah. So but basically if we have, let's say we're look, we can look at a stratify a little bit and we take 100 control people and 100 of these elite athletes. And uh, if in a given year, I mean, there would be a massive mortality, so it's not realistic, but let's say that, well, let's say that one, one um, that 10 people die from the control group and then you would have 31% less of the athlete group that dies. So three people dying. Do I do my math correct there? Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. All right. Um, so, and, and, and if you look at the uh, cardiovascular disease uh, standardized mortality ratio, what was, what was that? Um, so when we then split that down into the different sport types of cardiovascular disease, benefits were actually even greater than the all-cause mortality benefits. So, for example, in endurance groups, we saw a standardized mortality ratio of 0.63, which was greater than we observed in the team sports, which was 0.76. So quite substantial differences there according to sport type as well. Mm, Yeah. I guess it's worth pointing out that the the reason that you uh, looked into cardiovascular disease and cancer specifically is that those are the two most common reasons for death today uh or is there anything else that uh that i'm missing no that's the primary reason but it's also that those two diseases so cardiovascular disease and cancer have been shown to um, account for the greatest proportion of the changes in all-cause mortality so Mm. if we're going to see these changes in all-cause mortality it's useful to look at the things that contribute to it to see how they're changing as well yeah uh so if we discussed cancer uh, a little bit, but you didn't find uh, any any impact of elite athlete status on cancer mortality. So do you have any theories for why that or any speculation that you might get into for why that might be? Yeah. So we only didn't see the benefits in terms of cancer mortality in the endurance group. We did see the benefits for mm-hmm. team and power athletes. Um, in terms of the endurance group, our very speculative hypothesis as to why that might have happened was potentially because of their significant improvements in all-cause mortality and in cardiovascular disease mortality, which meant that effectively their training practices or lifestyles, as we say, had removed two of the main determinants, two of the main factors that might have led to mortality. So as people age, we have more scope for other diseases to take hold. So it's effectively that they were living longer and they had a reduced risk of cardiovascular disease. So something was likely yeah. to occur, and that left the gate open for it to be cancer. Yeah. Um, and regarding the fact that you didn't have enough data to look uh, into the female athletes at a, at a detailed level uh, specifically, what might you speculate that if there are any differences between females and males in in these mortality factors, is, is there any theories that you might have around that that could be investigated in future studies? It's certainly something that needs a lot more investigation. I think females for so long have been the hidden gender, so we haven't got good data on the physiology of female females full stop, let alone female athletes. And it's something that's certainly coming to the forefront at the moment is that people are realising there are significant differences between the sexes or between the genders. And that's not likely to be different in this scenario. So there is some provisional evidence to suggest that there may be different outcomes 
in longevity between male and female athletes. So in our review, we saw that the all-cause mortality risk was actually slightly more improved in female athletes than in male athletes. And there was a recent study, I think it's 2020 from memory, where they again found that there was a difference between males and females and that I think it was the males in that study actually had a slightly superior survival benefit. So it remains really controversial as to what the difference is going to be, but there's a very strong reason to suspect there is one. And potential factors that could contribute to that are things like the very different hormonal milieu in both sexes. Obviously, men are much more characterized by the significant testosterone concentrations, whereas some of the sex hormones associated with female gender have been shown to have quite significant effects in pathological circumstances, especially respiratory outcomes. There's also obviously genetic differences, genetic predispositions to different diseases. And we know that in the general population, women obviously have the survival benefit anyway. So there's clearly something going on that influences how long males and females live. And there's, as I say, little reason to provide an argument why that wouldn't last through to elite athletes. Perhaps one final and possibly more controversial area that could contribute to um, sex differences or gender differences could also be some of the training practices and the support available for the different sexes. So conventionally, male sports have got a lot more support behind them. They get better sponsorship. They get a lot more medical support. Many professional female teams actually don't have medical support, don't have as good of access to um, healthcare. So you could imagine that could then have knock-on consequences in terms of their outcomes in later life. Mm, yeah. Um, and uh, one thing, going back a bit to the magnitude of uh, uh, of the effects here, uh, in, in your study, you converted these mortality, standardized mortality ratios to life expectancy years. Uh, so I think that might be interesting to give some examples of, of those numbers for the listeners, if, if you want to share a couple of those. Yep. Um, so recent estimates of years saved um, are around about the five-year ballpark. So there's quite a few different studies that have looked, as you say, at converting these estimates into well, years saved. Um, and there's a lot of country differences, which is quite interesting. But on average, it's around about a five-year benefit for the elite athletes relative to the general population. Yeah. Yeah. Not not insignificant. <laughs> to get five Definitely years. not, no. <laughs> Uh, yeah. All right. So uh, one thing as well that I wanted to ask you about is, uh, especially with, because I remember when, I think it was maybe the Danish study that you mentioned that find this J-shaped relationship. And, and I think that got pretty big in the media. Uh, and uh, yeah, I saw it kind of all around and people started asking me, obviously, because I'm training quite a lot as a triathlete, like, oh, what do you think about this? Should you start, start training a little bit less maybe? So, uh, I mean, I, I think that studies like these especially that are kind of investigating mortality obviously they are kind of it can get um how should i put it um well you can get very invested in them but also yeah it, it because a lot is at stake kind of so and of course it, it's in the interest of the media to report something that is very interesting to get clicks or get subscriptions or whatever it is what what's, what advice would you have uh, when it comes to reading about studies like this in popular media when it comes to 
figuring out what is actually going on, what, what is actually found, or what is the context in which something is found, and how what does it mean? How putting things in perspective? Do you have some advice around those uh, those different questions? Uh, definitely, I think one of the really important factors is to try and tease out what it is that they've actually looked at. So it's all very well and good having these nice headlines to say X training is associated with this or that outcome. But what do they actually mean by that training? What intensity is the training? What frequency is it? Those are all part of the dose-response relationship. And I think what we're beginning to understand is that this dose-response relationship is very nuanced and likely differs within sexes and between different groups of people as well. So different populations are likely to respond to the same stimuli in a different way. One of the other really important things is where people try and attribute very complex factors to a single component. So to try and say training results in this change in mortality is a a vast oversimplification of something that's related to, yes, training is a component of it, but is it the effect of training when you're 20, 30 years old on your life when you're 70, 80 years old? Is it the habits that it instills? Is it some kind of genetic predisposition you had that partly selected you into that training and sport in the first place? Is it nutritional habits? Is it changes in gut microbiome, for example, which has recently received quite a lot of interest? Or is it a simple factor of differences in SES? Oh, sorry, I should say socioeconomic status. There's so many factors. So when people just try and say training has this effect, you've got to take that with a pinch of salt and look at that wider picture. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned a couple of great points there. And uh, what factors are controlled for in general in a study, I think is really important to look at and uh, yeah there might be a ton tons of factors that can have an impact and there might be a correlation but not a causation just because you didn't control for something but then on the other hand if you try to control for everything then you're never going to get a significant result and you're never going to to find anything so uh so yeah you have to find that right balance i guess between internal and external validity in uh, in your research and that's a really tricky thing Definitely. I think you also have to look carefully at what the studies specifically looked at. So, for example, there are some studies that have looked at athlete longevity and they've come to conclusions about which athletes live longer or perhaps don't have as long a longevity, but they've done it on the basis of factors such as what words your initials spell out. So that then often gets grouped in with other studies that have looked at athlete longevity. But if you were to look at the methodological rigour, you may draw into question whether or not if your initials spell out a positive word such as ace relative to a negative word such as dead, whether or not that really has implications for your physiological outcomes. So Mm. it's important to look at the details of the studies as well as just taking the big picture because you can, averaging has a um, a lot of issues. You can average out a lot of things that shouldn't be averaged out. Yeah. And, um, what what do you think about media consumption of uh, when it comes to consuming information about uh, about studies about research? Uh, are there do do you have any recommendations? Like if people maybe it's not realistic to expect everybody to go and read the original study. I don't think are there any really good sources where studies like yours are distilled into uh, into more layman's language, I guess, but still without losing perspective and uh, or sensationalizing things well obviously there's great podcasts like that triathlon which i would strongly recommend that people go to um, but in addition to that there are increasingly researchers are trying to 
disseminate their findings in more accessible manners so less just relatively dull academic paper but get podcasts and blogs and um, articles out there so there's the the online resource called the conversation which is quite good it's um quite accessible and researchers certainly like to get their studies put into that and they can be some of the more because they're so oversubscribed they tend to be the more exciting studies that are talked about there there are also various organizations which are specifically focused at trying to translate research into practice especially in the area of health and performance sport so for example i'm based in wales and there's two institutions called the welsh institute of performance science and the welsh institute of physical activity health and sport which both have that specific remit of trying to get research into applied practice so if you do have questions approach approaching institutions like that as a practitioner as a athlete could be really beneficial yeah those are those are great great tips and uh, even twitter perhaps a lot of researchers are on twitter and you can maybe just reach out to an author and and ask them hey what's what's your take on your own study uh, and that might be better than a journalist's take uh, so probably is <laughs> definitely worth trying um, i think some authors some academics may be as biased as your journalists but as long as you take what they say as their opinion on their study then mm. i think that's a faith most people should give you a faithful representation yeah um and uh yeah just finally on your on going back to your study what what do you want to leave as a take-home message for the listeners on it i think the absolutely key take-home message is that elite athletes do have survival benefits over the general population the primary contributor to that for endurance athletes appears to be reductions in cardiovascular disease risk whereas for team and power athletes it may be a more equal contribution of reductions in cardiovascular disease and cancer mortality risk but absolutely vitally what we need is we need more research that accounts for many of the confounders that we've talked about and especially that looks at female athletes yeah that's uh, that's really great and and as i said i'll leave uh, the link to the paper in the show notes so uh, listeners that are interested can go and and read it in full uh so now let's finish up with the rapid fire questions. So take just one sentence to answer these. And the first one is, what's your favorite book, blog, or resource? And usually I say related to endurance sports, but but for you, uh, I'll change it a bit. So it can be related to anything that you want, uh, a good resource that you recommend. Um, I would probably say my favorite resource is the Michelin Restaurant Guide, because I think food is absolutely vital and a, a good meal out has many benefits beyond the nutritional value of it. That's really great. Uh, that's a great tip. Uh, and what's an important habit that you've benefited from athletically, professionally, or personally? Um, I had to give that one some thought, but I would say that it's probably owning a dog because it's kept me active. It's made sure that I engage in quite significant numbers of hours of running at various points, but it's also given me that breakaway and that companion for when perhaps sport or academic things didn't quite go the way I wanted. Mm. And uh, who's somebody that you look up to and that ha- or that has inspired you? Um, I'd probably not go for a famous person and just go for my parents. Um, my father for his excellence in his profession, but maintenance of his work-life balance. And my mother for her ability to tolerate my father. And also the demonstration that common sense very often is far better than any level of education. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And uh, finally, where can uh, listeners follow you and your work? Things like Twitter, ResearchGate, any, anything that you have that uh, where you're active Yep, so I'm on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is m.mcnary. 
Um, I've also got a ResearchGate profile under Melita McNary, so you can find all of the papers on there. And if you do have any questions, please don't hesitate to drop me an email. Um, my email is m.mcnary at swansea.ac.uk. And I'm always happy to talk about this. So please don't feel that you can't contact me. Perfect. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on and, and discuss your work. Uh, it's been really interesting for me uh, to, to hear about this, as I said, quite quite a different topic compared to what we normally do here, but uh, but very fascinating. And, uh, and I think positive news for endurance athletes that are listening to this show that it seems like, uh, yeah, that th- things are positive with, in terms of a dose response relationship perhaps of that training even though i shouldn't go to that conclusion perhaps but but still i, I think it's a positive study for endurance athletes to read yep i think there's as you say it's definitely positive and provided we keep the lifestyle around it as beneficial as we can then it's all looking good and thank you very much for the opportunity to come and talk to you and your listeners I hope that you enjoyed that interview. Uh, I know that it was uh, a quite different topic to what we normally have, which is more training, racing, physiology related and so on. But uh, I think that many endurance athletes uh, actually came into the endurance sport in the first place specifically for health reasons. And for pretty much all of us, regardless of what made us come into the sport in the first place, at least some part of the reason for why we do it and love it has to do with health, I believe. So So I think that uh, you will appreciate the topic or a lot of listeners will appreciate this topic and, and this insight into potentially really, really positive outcomes for endurance athletes, even though uh, this meta-analysis, of course, is uh, done in a particular population of elite athletes. As always, you can find the show notes for the episode on scientifictriathlon.com. And we'll have links to Melita's Twitter, ResearchGate, and Swansea University profiles, as well as the, uh, the meta-analysis. Again, it's called Health Consequences of Elite Sporting Career, Long-Term Detriment or Long-Term Gain, a meta-analysis of 165,000 former athletes. It's a pretty easy read, so if you're interested, definitely I recommend go and have a look. If you're looking to take your triathlon or endurance performance level up a notch, then the first thing I would recommend is to get a coach. And if you cannot do that, maybe for budgeting reasons, then a training plan would be the second best choice. Regardless of what you think is right for you, we have something for you at scientifictriathlon.com. Check out our coaching services and our training plans, and I'm sure you won't be disappointed. We would love to help you out and get become a better endurance athlete. Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Use Precision Hydration's free resources like the online sweat test and the quick carb calculator to get a personalized hydration strategy and get a fu- your fueling strategy on point for your next race as well as for training. And you can get a free one-on-one consultation as well on precisionhydration.com. And finally, you can get 15% off your first order with the promo code DEATTRIATHLONSHOW15. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, dry suits, swim skins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses. And get 20% off your order with a promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.